This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. Hi, I'm Matt Jones. And today on the Passive Real Estate Podcast, I welcome Ruben Greth. Ruben has a popular podcast about raising money for multifamily syndication called The Capital Raiser Show, where he learns from the best multifamily syndicators in the country. In 2019, Ruben partnered with a local syndicator on the acquisition of 190 units and has since become a fund manager who is building a 98-unit housing subdivision in Louisiana, 104-50-unit housing subdivision in Alabama, and partnering with multiple select syndicators bringing equity, advisory, and investor management. He primarily uses Regulation D, Exemption 506C in his dealings. He has partnered in $5 million of capital raising partnerships. He got his start by bringing a joint venture capital to a successfully uh, raising 625K for a small multifamily deals uh, during the post-crash buying free, uh, frenzy in Phoenix. So welcome, uh, Ruben. <laughs> it's great to see you. And we, we actually met back in 2019 at a conference. Yeah, so, man. Uh, Fantastic to be here, Matt. Thank you for having me, man. Really stoked to be here. Great. Is there anything else you'd like the audience to know about you? No, I mean, that's pretty much it. I got my start in small multis and then crawled back to corporate America, came back, found out about heavy lift syndications or large scale multifamily investing. Mm -hmm. Did that for a while, launched a podcast and then got into fund management and syndicating my own deals instead of raising for other people. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and your podcast, The Capital Raiser Show is excellent. I listen to it regularly. Thanks. So I highly recommend it to our listeners here. Very cool. I appreciate that. Yeah. So now you're doing build to rent. Uh, you know, that's uh, quite a, a big leap from the small multifamily <laughs> yeah. stuff. How'd you get involved in the build to rent? So when I left my previous company, who was basically doing very heavy lift multifamily. So in other words, they would like gut apartment buildings and go down to 0% vacancy. But they were only doing stuff in Arizona and my podcast, I was interviewing all these guys all over the country and I wanted access to their deal. So I kind of went off, spread my own wings and decided to launch a fund. And that's when I came across my existing partner who, in addition to raising capital for others, for other multifamily investors, he also was partnered with some guys in Louisiana that are doing development and when I say development, I'm talking about subdivision development. So they build like 100 to 200 houses at a time. And we've kind of made that our core business model. So I didn't know anything about development just about 18 months ago. And it's been a pretty wild ride. Awesome. Well, and then so these uh, houses that you're building, then you're renting them out, uh, you know, kind of treating it like a large apartment complex, essentially. Yeah, right. So that's one of the big things that I think a lot of people don't really grasp is that when you're building houses, you're not really treating them like houses as much as a commercial real estate property where the entire subdivision is rented. You don't sell the houses individually, and then you rent them out and sell the entire subdivision as one commercial real estate asset that is valued based off the net operating income of the entire subdivision versus just off of you know the rental income of one house, which is typically valued based off of the neighboring properties using that kind of approach. Okay. And what are some of the key differences between doing this uh, build-to-rent uh, subdivisions versus, let's say, multifamily? It's actually really similar, believe it or not. 
and particularly the way that we do it, right? So the houses that we build, they're about the same size as a two-bedroom apartment. They're around 1,200 square feet. They actually are three-bedroom, two-bath. They have, you know, brand new everything, stained flooring, brand new fixtures, you know, crown molding, stained concrete floors and luxury faucets and shaker cabinets and all that. But the major difference is, is that these houses, they come with a driveway, a side yard, another side yard, a backyard, a privacy fence. So it's affordable housing. That's the same as same size as a two bedroom apartment, but you have more privacy and it feels more like a home. And typically the renters stay there for a lot longer versus you know, when you have a vertical multifamily, like let's say a garden style four-story building, you have a neighbor above you, below you, to the left of you, to the right of you, and across from you with a little balcony. So sometimes that's great. You know, if if that's if you don't want to take care of a yard, we actually do maintenance on our properties on, on our subdivision. So that's all included in the experience when somebody lives there. But essentially it's the same thing, right? It's affordable housing. It's a small housing unit, I guess, except the only major difference is, is that it's detached, separated, and we actually call it horizontal multifamily because mm. essentially we run it like it as if it was one multifamily property with one property manager and one leasing agent, and all of the properties, all the houses are in one spot instead of being scattered all over you know, multiple counties or multiple cities. Yeah, certainly make, makes that easy from a management standpoint. Right. And uh, what kind of rents are you getting on these single families? So in this particular market, I'm thinking of the one, the 98 unit that we have in Dusan, Louisiana, which is connected to Lafayette. We're getting around 1700 And then if you include, I can't remember if that includes the doggy um, deposit, you know, the dog, the pet deposit, and then... I think we also add it, you know, we replace the door with the doggy door if that's, if they do that, but we get an extra 250 deposit and I think 25 or $50 a month in rent. So I think like either 17 or 1750 for one of these three bedroom houses in Lafayette, Louisiana. Nice. Nice. And so the passive investors in this, you mentioned a fund, is it through a fund or are they, you know, kind of direct equity investors? How does that work? So we run these as typical syndications. And so from a passive investor standpoint, if you guys are familiar with syndications, it's essentially a 70-30 split between the operators and the developers where they make 30%. And then the limited partners, the guys that provide a lot of the capital, they get 70% of the profits. So we run it kind of like that where a limited partner comes in, they double their money on one of these 506 deals in, a, in essentially five years, and then they start cash flowing probably about month 24 to 30, depending on how fast we build these things. So, but it's not, you know, I think a lot of people that are passive, they don't kind of compare the different asset classes and sub niches of multifamily, which we consider this a sub niche of multifamily. Because there's A class, which cash flows from day one, B class, which is almost cash flowing or possibly cash flowing from day one, but makes maybe a little bit less back end equity. And then a C class, which is a lot more renovation, less cash flow, but a lot bigger back end equity play. 
and then like a full gut rehab or a D class, which is not going to make very much cash flow at all, but it's going to make a really huge backend equity play. And development is kind of like the last part in terms of the risk profile, because the investors are not going to cash flow when you're, you know, investing in a piece of land or a piece of dirt until it's actually built out and rented. That's when you're going to start getting cash flow. And much like the D class or heavy lift syndications, you're going to get a very big equity spread when the entire subdivision sells, just like you would in a, you know, complete gut job where you're rebuilding and have a zero vacancy, no cash flow, and then you make a lot of money when the property sells. Okay. And so what's a typical timeline from when somebody invests to when they start getting a cash flow back? Yeah. So one thing that you should know is we typically purchase the land with an option and then complete that with their own capital. So we remove that risk because some people think that a lot of people, and I think rightfully so, believe that development, particularly because they think of spec homes back in 2008 that did horrible during the economic meltdown of the you know mortgage crisis back then. So we actually buy the land, we then put in infrastructure, and then once all of the streets, sewers, utilities are put in, at that point is when we launch our syndication, we raise money for just the vertical development. And it doesn't, from that point, it doesn't take us very long. So it reduces the risk and the timeline for our investors. And then of course, from the operator perspective, we don't have to be paying interest on people's money when we just have the land, right? So that benefits us and the investors because from the time that we start building until the time it's completed, it's only about 18 months, possibly 24 months if, if you underwrite it with a little bit more uh, perspective of being conservative. But so from the time that you invest to the time that it's completely cash flowing and built out might be 18 to 24 months. And then we sell it about six months later. Of course, we underwrite it for five years just in case there's kind of weird things going on in the future economy that we can't foresee. But, you know, we expect that we can easily get out of these properties in about five years and then double investor money. Nice, nice. So why would someone as an investor choose to invest in uh, build to rent versus a pre-established uh, multifamily apartment building? Well, I think they're having an impact by creating affordable housing for communities and providing places where people can have a brand new house to live in and have the real family experience. Cash flow is a big driver of a lot of people. And when you have a brand new building, people tend to stay a long time. But they may want to invest in something like this because it's very challenging to find a deal in the multifamily value add space right now in early part of 2023 that is penciling, that's making financial sense, particularly when there's all these people coming into the space and bidding on the same properties and driving up the price. And, you know, people can't really make it cash flow as well as they could maybe five years ago because the interest rates have risen up so high. So the nice thing about development is that we're not competing with anybody where you know, where we're investing land is super cheap we're investing in cities that are pro growth that are moving us through the entitlements and bureaucracy very quickly there's not a lot of red tape the cities are in growth mode they want affordable housing so they get us through the city planning department relatively quickly 
So from the time that people invest to the time that they actually get their money back is relatively short. And it makes a lot of sense in an uh, economic climate where finding a good large scale multifamily property is getting harder and harder, at least right now. Nice. So, you know, when you're looking for these markets that uh, have a shortage of affordable housing and are, let's say, landlord friendly, uh, so it makes the red tape a lot easier. You know, For example, I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, we're in St. Paul, the government hates landlords. So you know, not many people are wanting to develop here right now uh, because of that. Yeah. Uh, so in some cities, there's rent control, right? If you think of certain parts of California, Oregon, Washington, and the Upper East Coast and New York, what a lot of people aren't aware of is that a lot of these places, when you develop a brand new housing project or even a brand new vertical multifamily, like four-story building, is that rent control typically doesn't apply to brand new buildings. It applies to assets that have existed for at least 15 years or at least 10 years. I know in Portland, it's 15 years. So if you change the rent on the brand new property or establish a brand new rent on a brand new asset, you don't have to deal with rent control or worry about raising, you know, suffering through the ability of not being able to raise rents because that only applies to older properties. So that's one thing. Yep. And that makes sense. And actually when uh, St. Paul had its rent control recently, uh, they started with, you know, even new developments having uh, limitations on, on wow. how much they could rent, but then they had to backpedal because like uh, developments stopped immediately uh, when that happened. And you bring up an interesting point because depending on where you are trying to do this business model, it might make more or less sense, right? So if you go to Phoenix or Dallas or Atlanta or one of these cities that has a lot of bureaucracy and a long waiting list in order to see the city planner, it might not make as much financial sense, I mean, particularly if land prices are very high, to purchase properties in these areas if you want to get in and out of deals quickly. Now, obviously, institutions are coming into Phoenix and other places, and they have money that can sit there and wait. You know, All they care about is what they're going to make once they sell the property in 5, 10 years or hold it You know, so they can have all the tax benefits that are associated with owning real estate. But for us as operators, we need to get our investor money back very quickly because that's the name of the game. How fast can the velocity of money work for you? And in certain markets, you can make um, built to rent or developments or certain types of investing a lot more feasible because it's quick, right? So in Louisiana, Alabama, the Southeast, Florida, and other places, you can get in and out of the city very quickly and then get your money back to your investors relatively fast. I think you make a great point there because, you know, you are more personalized with your, your support that you're providing with your investors versus a big conglomerate, uh, which, uh, you know, doesn't really care about one investor versus the other. But, you know, you uh, know your investors, you talk with them. Uh, so what, what kind of supports do you provide for your investors? So we pride ourselves on white glove service, but that doesn't really get too crazy, right? So I think even institutions require a great deal of communication and possibly some ownership and ability to kick you out if you misperform. The limited partners aren't quite as demanding, but they do require, I mean, I think they have for the last about five, 10 years, a great deal of honesty, transparency, and communication, like what's going on with the property, 
And then hopefully you have some kind of technology where people can log in in their underwear at three in the morning and see what's going on. Are there any updates? You know, how far are you along with construction or what's the vacancy rate on your multifamily property? And if you can do that and be able to answer the phone, I think that's the experience that people are looking for, right? Because if you're spending a big chunk of your nest egg or investing, better said, into somebody's syndication and then you can't get them on the phone, or if they disappear during lending crises or economic calamities or during a pandemic, that can get very scary, right? Because that's a lot of money that you've worked really hard for. So I think just providing that communication is a big part of it because some syndicators and operators and multifamily large-scale sponsors they're very good at finding and acquiring deals and finding deals that make money, but they might not be quite as good at communicating with investors. So some investors that make good money, like 25% IRR, they don't come back to invest with those same sponsors because they were freaking out about what's going on with my money the whole time. So I think that's that's one of the big things that kind of separates us or that we focus on better said is just making sure that the investors are very well taken care of. They know how to what to expect when their taxes are going to be returned, what's going on with the property, when are they going to start cash flowing, when are they going to receive distributions, although typically in our case that's a little bit later down the road. But that you know, knowing are we still on track to make a good return and what's the what's the status of the project I think are really important for people. Oh, I agree. I mean, you know, whenever I talk to passive investors, that's often their number one complaint about a, a, a you know, a problem that they've encountered. The communication is poor, uh, and, and especially when things go wrong, and they inevitably do with deals. Uh, you know, you, you can have the perfect plan, but uh, there's going to be problems that arise. So, you know, what's a, a problem that you've encountered through the build to rent, and uh, how how is that handled? So, build to rent is a little bit of a different beast than multifamily value add because typically, when you're working with a bank, they give you money in tranches for development for the build out. So, if something happens like lending parameters change, or the cost of lumber changes, or the cost of cement, or supply chain getting materials to your subdivision and whatnot, if those things change, the banks they change their parameters too. And then all of a sudden they may say, hey, you know, wood is more expensive now. So you need to have, in order for us to continue to lend to you, another 800,000 in reserves. And then you have to go back to your investors and or go get new investors to, to provide the capital to, to have that money in reserves. And that can affect the returns a little bit. So that's why we have to be exceptionally conservative when we are underwriting our developments and you know make a lot of things in, put a lot of things in place where it's extra gravy right so we're saying hey you know we expect a 1450 month rental income from each unit when in reality we believe it's going to be closer to 1700 or more and then you know we have certain reserves and stipulations and we try we try and set it up in the beginning so that when these things happen, you know, our investors know and expect them to happen because a lot of multifamily value add limited partners aren't used to that, right? They're just used to, hey, we raised, you know, we gave you our money and then we just sit here and, and wait. But the reality is in construction, there's all kinds of hiccups where, you know, the economic climate and lending 
um, parameters change along the way. So people have to be ready to deal with that. And uh, it can be challenging, right? So the the best way that we've dealt with it is is just conservatively underwriting and having a lot of reserves and stipulations in place that allow, you know, stress testing in such a way so that we are ready to deal with those kinds of things. Yeah, that makes sense. And what kind of lending are you getting with uh, built to rent? So it's expensive. It's very similar to bridge debt or, you know, what some people call soft money, but essentially it's like a, a 10%, 9%, 13% kind of interest rate during the construction phase. And then once everything is built out, then you refinance into a long-term product, a, you know, like Fannie Freddie or agency debt kind of product, which, you know, the, the scary part is you don't know what the debt's what the lending rates are going to be in two or three years. So sometimes you try and work with a lender that can lock that in, but typically that's almost nearly impossible. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter too much because we're not keeping these long-term. We're selling these off to institutional buyers that buy the entire subdivision from us as one particular commercial real estate asset. That makes sense. So you're, you're kind of getting the best of both worlds where you're you know building this up and then getting it cash flowing and then uh, get that appreciation where you can, uh, when you have the sale to uh, give back to your investors. Yeah. Right now, I think we have the intention to sell these things off the entire subdivisions to institutions, but you know, the name of our company is called legacy acquisition. So from that, just the name implies that we want to hold some of these for a long, long, long time and be able to give it off to our, our grandchildren and, you know, create educational awareness of, of finance, you know, financial literacy for our children and give them the ability to either run it um, or have a asset manager or financial manager in place that can continue to grow these portfolios over time when our kids decide they don't want to do real estate, they want to go and be an anthropologist down in Mexico and study Mayan history or whatever, and, and pull up ruins or whatever it is that they're, they're interested in doing. They may not be interested in managing money or managing real estate. So you try and educate them and give them the greatest ability to manage them or get them in front of the right partners that can help them manage that money while they do whatever it is that they want to do in their life. Awesome. All right. Are you ready for a speed round? Let's do it. What's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? The cash flow, <laughs> <laughs> right? So it essentially gives you geographical freedom, travel freedom, time freedom, and the ability to pay all of your liabilities or at least a chunk of them. But once you get to a certain status where you have enough passive income to pay for all of your liabilities, that's when you become financially free, whatever that looks like for you. But it's the cash flow and the pursuit of excellence and pursuit of financial freedom that most attracts me to it. I love it. And well, what do you know now about passive real estate investing that you wish you knew when you first got started? So I didn't know about the tax benefits or cost segregation or the different things that you can do. Or the other thing is also is investing into a tax sheltered vehicle prior to investing in a syndication like an infinite banking policy or an enhanced qualified retirement program. So that way your money is sheltered from a variety of taxes at multiple levels and even offshore trusts or hybrid trusts or ways to park your money and protect yourself from getting sued, 
you know, if you are investing in real estate, somebody could potentially try and come after your assets as an active operator, but as a passive investor, you want to know what kind of entities are out there and different tax structures you can do to save money as well. Excellent. And what's a book you can recommend to passive investors? So I like Joe Fairless's book, The Best Ever Apartment Syndication Book. It's written probably more for active operators, but the passive investor that really wants to learn about it, learn about passive investing, can garner a whole bunch of information from a book like that. Mm. Or I think Brian Burke has a book called Hands Off Investor or something like that. So that's one that I just bought that I'm getting ready to read. I've heard that it's really good. And I think some of your friends in your neck of the woods, like Anthony Bacino's got a book called Passive Investing Made Simple. Mm -hmm. I would check out all of those books. Excellent. And how can our listeners get in contact with you if they want to learn more about what you have going on? So if they want to hang out with me, they can either listen to my podcast or find me on LinkedIn or the other social medias. And if they're interested in finding out more about the Built to Rent, they can check out our website at legacyacquisitions.com. Great. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't covered yet? Yeah, don't be sitting on the sidelines. So I interviewed this guy. His name is Sam Freshman. He started syndicating in the early 60s, and he purchased a high-rise building as his first syndication. He bought it for a million bucks, and then a couple of years later, he sold it for $2 million. And he was thinking, yeah, I made a million dollars. This is great for him and his investors. But that same building today is worth $100 million. So when I asked him, what are the biggest mistakes that people make in real estate investing for somebody that's gone through multiple cycles? He says, the biggest mistake is I wish I would have bought more real estate and I wish I wouldn't have sold it so soon. So I know it's kind of scary to invest right now because you're thinking, oh, it was so much better a few years back. But the reality is if you invest in any kind of real estate over time, it's going to double and triple and quadruple or maybe like this guy go a hundred times over in value. So even if it's the top of the market, the bottom of the market, or you invest incorrectly, if you just hold real estate, you'll end up doing great. So don't sit on the sidelines, get involved in some real estate, go study some people, go make friends network and find who you trust in this business that has a track record of making success, of being successful in up markets, down markets, and any other kind of real estate cycle. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ruben, and have a great rest yeah, of your buddy. day. Thank you so much, man. This has been a blast. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.